Amen. Well, after one of our services last week, I had a really nice uh, lady come to talk to me, and she said, you know, Tom, she goes, I don't come and talk to you after the services a lot, and, and I've never really brought you anything like this before, but I felt like I really needed to say this to you, otherwise, you know, I, I would have felt like I was being disobedient to the Lord. She said, God spoke to me, and He wants you to know, um, no, God spoke to me, and He wants you to know that He's heard the cry of your heart, and that He's going to move. And, uh, and I don't know, you know, how that squares with your Presbyterian sensibilities, but, um, but I'm going to tell you straight up, it doesn't offend mine in the least. Uh, I, I thought it was amazing, and I thought it was awesome. And beyond that, I think that it's biblical. What does Jesus say? He says, if you then, who are evil, just, you know, absorb that for a moment, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father in heaven do what? Give good gifts to his kids? No. How much more will the Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of Him? And that's what we've been praying for, some of us for years, some of us for months, some of us for about three weeks, and some of us for two or one. And I think He's moving. It's remarkable. We had more feedback after our services last week than I remember ever having after any services, ever, like at any time. No kidding. I talked to a woman this morning who came up to me and she said, you know, I've been going to church all my life and, and I've been to a lot of different places. And she said, last Sunday for the first time in my life, I felt free to worship. Think about that. Because that's how we ought to feel. Like if there's a place on the planet where we don't have to feel like we have to pose, this should be it. You know, where we don't have to worry about what anybody's thinking about us and where we're consumed with our thoughts for one being, one person, where we come for an audience of one and we're the performers, if you will, it should be here. It's amazing. Last Sunday night, our student ministry kicked off um, Alpha. It's the first time these guys have done it. 83 students from Fort Lauderdale showed up in Alpha last Sunday night. Amazing. Half of those had been invited by our team. Our guests, they came as guests. In other words, they came as people who said, okay, so here's the deal. I don't know if I believe this stuff, but what you're telling me is you've created a safe place for me to come, a judgment-free zone where I can say what I really think, and you guys are not going to try to argue with me, you know. You're not going to shame me. You're going to listen to me respectfully. You're going to consider my opinions, and I can go on this journey and consider the big issues of life from the Christian faith. Yes, and they came. It's awesome. This past Thursday night, we kicked off Adult Alpha. This is the second time that we've done it. It. And I'm just going to say it, I was really nervous, okay? Because like two weeks ago, I think we had two people signed up, and I'm going, oh, Lord, you know, we've planned, and, and we've, we've got all the food, and I mean, we've got it all lined up. Forty people showed up on Thursday night. I went home in tears. Seriously. I couldn't believe it. Twenty guests. It was awesome. It's amazing. Our school, Bethany Christian School. Oh, wait, no, Warren Gage's class. Uh, that also happened here on Thursday night. We had 69 people, and not just from Rio, actually largely from other churches comprising, I think, a, a movement of the Lord and what He's doing in our city and in our county. It's amazing, the story of the Bible. And then our school this past Friday, so two days ago, had their fun run. They had it in here. This is a versatile room right here, okay? You can't believe how many things this room has been over the years. But it was the fun run on Thursday. They set a goal of $50,000. So as of yesterday afternoon at 3, I think, they were at $54,655 and counting. And, um, 
And they wanted me to tell you that even though the run is over, you can still sponsor Billy the Bobcat on the Bethany website. So I throw that out there in the event that you want to do that. But I say that to encourage you, not now to stop praying, but to pour it on, man. To go, wow, okay, God, do it. And do it, do it in me. So last week, we began this conversation about what moves you, and we talked about the fact, this is the starting place, that there is nothing and no one more moving in all of the universe than the Lord God Himself. However, we openly acknowledge that you do not know that unless or until you see Him. And so then what did we do? We went to see Him. We opened up the Word of God to Revelation chapter 4, and we allowed the Apostle John through the vision that he shares with us there with all of this amazing, incredibly enlightening detail to take us up into the throne room of God and to reveal to us who our God really is, not who we think He is or who we've been told that He is, but who He really is and what He's actually like. It's amazing. And what we learned when we went up into His presence is, hey, you know what? There actually is nothing and no one else in all the universe more moving than the Lord God, which kind of makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, if there is a God and if He's the God of the Bible, then that would in fact be the case. But here's what else we learned. We also learned that everything else that moves us in this life, like art, like music, like sports and achievement and excellence and nature and all of these other things, they actually too also trace their roots all the way back to the great artist, to the great musician, to the giver of every gift, of every life, of every achievement to the one who fashioned nature. And today, as we continue the conversation, I'm going to add, and to the one who has written a story that every other moving story reflects. What makes a moving story a story? A moving story. What makes it a moving story? I think that it's a reflection of God's story. So I'm going to give you some examples. The Lord of the Rings, one of my very favorite examples. My kids go crazy because I watch this movie all of the time, like I just, like I drive everyone in the family nuts. But it's an incredibly moving story. I don't think anybody can actually argue with that. Go look at the book sales. Look at how many billions they've generated with their films. Look at how often it's on TV. <laughs> what is the story? Well, when you look at it from, you know, 20,000 feet, The Lord of the Rings is the story of the total overthrow of evil and of the evil one himself, is it not? accomplished largely by the smallest and most unlikely of creatures, Frodo Baggins, a hobbit from the Shire, who, contrary to absolutely everyone's expectations, takes the ring of power, the very emblem of evil, into the fiery pits of Mount Doom in the land of Mordor, the picture of hell, and extinguishes it for everyone else in Middle-earth, and who does this mission believing wholeheartedly that it will cost him his life in order to gain that victory for everyone else. What is that? What is that if not a picture of the gospel, of the story of God who came to us in the person of Jesus Christ? I'm sorry, the smallest and most unlikely of characters. A first century Jewish carpenter, a slave of the Roman Empire, a Galilean, meaning second class Jew at that even in his own day, judged by his own people. And yet, the one who took evil upon himself the evil one upon himself, sin and death itself, hell itself, and put it to death at the expense of his own life on a cross. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? That's why that story moves you. What about Harry Potter? I'm not going to lie, we could be here all day on this one. <laughs> I love all of the biblical images in the Harry Potter movies and series and books. Sorry. 
They're awesome. But what is the story of Harry Potter? And let's just talk about how it ends, okay? Because I think you see it most clearly there. How does it end? It ends when Harry Potter, who is obviously the Christ figure in this series, willingly goes out to the Forbidden Forest, a place full of trees, to allow himself to lay down his life in love for his friends and for the salvation of the world, to defeat evil and the evil one who is Voldemort, the obvious Satan figure, who even looks like a serpent for crying out loud. He goes out there and he lays down his life. And then having done that, he chooses to come back from the dead. Resurrection. And then personally defeats the evil one and saves the world. What is that if not the story of, of Jesus? God made man come into this world to take upon himself evil and the evil one and sin and death and hell and all of these things and to willingly lay down his life, allowing himself to be nailed to a tree so that by the power of his resurrection, he might declare to you with authority that death has died, that evil has been vanquished, that the evil one has ended and that all for you and for forever, you will enjoy a world in which none of that exists. It's awesome. All right, last one, Cinderella. You know this one, right? You know that researchers that tell, tell us that there is a recognizable version of the Cinderella story in every culture, every tribe, every language of man. Take that in for a moment. What does that say? What does it mean? All of us universally have produced this story in all of our different cultures and nations and tribes and so forth. It's a story that moves us universally. So what is the story? Well, the story is of a, of a girl who is trapped in a life that she can't get out of. It's a life of slavery and servitude to her evil, wicked stepmother and her evil, wicked stepsisters. And even though she is a beautiful girl, she was created to be beautiful, yet because of all of the tasks that she's given, including sweeping the chimney, all of her beauty is covered over and obscured and marred. There's no hope for her except for the fact that she lives in a kingdom that has a king who has a son. And it is the desire of the king that the son, the prince, take a bride. And so the king throws a ball. And he invites all of the maidens of the land. And Cinderella, through this magical series of events, is enabled to attend the ball. And you know the story. She dances with the prince, you know. And she leaves with his heart when the clock strikes 12. And all that she leaves behind is her glass slipper. And she's gone. And even though there are all these other women at the ball, and you know, the prince will have none but her. She's left with his heart. But what's he going to have to do? Because she can't come to him. She's trapped. She's enslaved. She's unrecognizable even where she's at. He's going to have to leave all the amenities of the palace and go look for her to seek and to save what he's lost. And so he goes out into the kingdom, and he goes house by house, door by door, looking and looking for the one whose foot fits the glass slipper until finally he comes to the house of Cinderella and he doesn't recognize her because her beauty is obscured, but the glass slipper fits. And, and what does he do? Because here's what he doesn't do. He doesn't go, whoa, you know, you've really let yourself go. <laughs> like, what happened? You look so much better at the ball. I'm going to rethink this thing, you know? He does for her what only he can do. He frees her from her slavery. 
He washes and makes her pure. He restores her beauty. He takes her to be with himself. Okay, what is that story? And let me make it personal. Let's look at it this way. I'm going to speak directly to you. You ready? God made you beautiful. But, and it's the same but for all of us, but as a result of our pride and of our selfishness and of the overrun of our passions and that of other people too. I mean, you know, we haven't poured it all on ourselves, but we've poured quite a bit. We have found ourselves enslaved and entrapped in a life that we can't get out of, filthy and covered in the soot that we have piled on ourselves and that we have piled on each other. And we have no hope except for the fact that we live in a kingdom that has a king, and the king has a son, and his name is Jesus. And it is the desire of the, of the Father that the Son take a bride, a people from amongst the people of this earth that belong uniquely to Him, that are His own for forever. And for some crazy, unthinkable reason, He has set His desire on me and on you. But we can't go to Him. So He comes to us. He enters into our world, leaving the amenities of heaven comes to us as one of us to seek and to save what has been lost. And at the expense of his own life, he breaks our bondage. He delivers and frees us. He washes us clean. He restores our beauty. And he takes us to be with him for forever. That's our eternal destiny. You see, the reason these stories, and I could give you lots of other examples... But the reason they resonate with us is because they're a reflection of the story that our hearts were made to be moved by, which is the story of the gospel. So here's what I want to do. I want to go back up into the throne room of God again, not from Revelation 4 this time, but from Isaiah 6. And I want to take another look at who God is. But in the worship of heaven, what I want you to see is the story. And more than that, I want you to experience the transformational rhythm of the story of God that your heart was made for. Isaiah the prophet says this in Isaiah 6, beginning in verse 1, he says that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, okay? Which is not just a statement about when he saw the Lord. He's not marking the date. Okay, you remember everybody, the year that King Uzziah died? All right, fine. That's when I saw the Lord. It's not what he's saying. That's a part of what he's saying, but I think it's the smallest part of what he's saying. What he's communicating in that moment is what's going on in his heart and in his mind and in his life, and for that matter, in the hearts and minds and lives of all of the people in the entirety of Israel. My goodness, Uzziah the king was dead. That's a big deal. Uzziah had been king for 52 years. He's likely the only king Isaiah had ever known and most of the people of Israel had ever known. And by the way, he was arguably the greatest king since Solomon, son of David. Under Uzziah, there was peace in the land, and there was prosperity in the land, and he expanded the territories and strengthened the borders. He was a great military king, and nearing the end of his death, the Assyrian Empire to the northeast was on the rise, and they were a brutal, vicious, huge, powerful people. They would come to a nation, and they would require that you submit to them. Lay down your arms, come out, and we will do with you what we will, and take from you what we want. Or you can resist us, we will destroy you, and then as a monument to what happens when you resist us, they literally did this. We'll cut your heads off and pile them up in pyramids and leave them behind for everyone else to see. We think we have issues. 
So in the year in which they needed Uzziah the king the most, or so they thought, he dies. And everybody is distressed, including Isaiah, who goes to the temple in despair, looking to find God. He says, in the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And where is the Lord? He is sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And you say, this is fantastic. So now he's going to tell us what he looks like, which actually he doesn't do. Like he doesn't describe his face, his head, his hands, his feet, his arms, his legs. He doesn't say he's six foot three and 220 or thereabouts. I mean, he doesn't describe any of the things that we think we'd be curious about when we come into the presence of the Lord. But instead, he describes only his robe. He says, in the train of his robe filled the temple, which seems odd until you understand that the robes of the king of the ancient Near East were emblems of their majesty. In other words, the more majestic the robe, the more majestic the king. And Isaiah, who wants us to see what he sees, to hear in a moment what he hears, to feel what he feels, to smell what he smells, it's very sensory. He's saying, guys, when you come into the presence of God, like the real God, okay, you are overawed by his majesty. There is none like him in the heavens. There is none like him in the earth. And then he says that above him stood the seraphim, which means literally burning ones, for their fire speaks of God's holiness, and so does their conduct. For he tells us that each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, unwilling to look upon the blazing holiness and glory of this majestic king. And with two he covered his feet, meaning the lower parts of his body, which speak of his creatureliness, unwilling to expose that in the presence of this glorious and majestic king. And with two he flew, ever ready to carry out the commands of the king. And one called to another, back and forth is the idea, from across the room. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then we're told that the foundations of the thresholds of the temple is the idea shook at the voice of him who called. What Isaiah is saying is that even inanimate, lifeless objects are moved in the presence of God. In the wonder of his praise, and then the house was filled with smoke, which is symbolic of God's presence, which, by the way, is where all true meaning begins. It's where all true purpose begins. And in this context, it's where all true worship begins. It begins with God and who He really is and what He's really like. And then here's what it does. Instinctively, like from your gut, you can't resist this, okay? When you actually see God, you immediately see yourself. And here's what you don't get. You don't get defensive. You don't start going, ah, you know, I got a little thing here that I'm a little uncomfortable with. But, you know, look at all this other stuff I've done. And, and you know, Lord, I've got an excuse for this. And I, you just hit your face and lay down on the ground and go, good grief, I'm undone. There's no defense for this. There's no excuse for this. There's no alibi. There's, no, there's, there's, just, there's nothing to do but to confess from the deepest place in my heart that I am a broken person, which is exactly what Isaiah does. He's a prophet. He proclaims a prophetic curse upon himself. He says, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, which doesn't mean he needs a napkin. It means his heart is unclean. From out of the heart, the mouth speaks. It happens all the time, doesn't it? it? Happens in your home, it happens in your office, it happens to all of us in the car for sure, doesn't it? <laughs> From out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I mean, just think about some of the things you filter out that don't come out of the mouth, but that still exist up in here. 
If you want to know how your heart's doing, listen to your mouth. Listen to your thoughts. My goodness, he says, woe is me. I, I'm, I'm lost. I, I, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and I, I came in here feeling pretty good about myself. I'm not going to lie. But now my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. And what does the Lord of hosts do? Because here's what he doesn't do. He doesn't look at Isaiah and go, good grief, you looked so much better at the ball. You've really let yourself go. You're right. You're a mess. What's the matter with you? He doesn't shame him. He doesn't guilt him. He doesn't berate him. He loves him. He has his heart. He loves you. You have his heart. He rescues him from his ruin. It says, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar of sacrifice. It's an image of the temple that was there in Jerusalem. There was an altar of sacrifice upon which the innocent animals were sacrificed, the blood of the innocent to cover over the guilty. So it's a bloody coal. You get the idea? And with it, he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, he proclaims him forgiven. This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And then having been forgiven, what happens next? Isaiah says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Lord, I don't know, but I mean, I'd consider going. So where do you want me to go? Like if, yeah, I mean, if, if it's me, like, so where, 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 where are we going? And like, and how, how long is it going to take? And do I get to take anybody with me? And does it have a 401k program? And do I get health insurance? And I mean, is there pay for this? And like, what's going on here? I mean, can I have some more details? Because I've got a lot to think through here and other things to manage. Now Isaiah just kind of raises his hand and looks around sheepishly and goes, hey, I know I'm kind of the new guy here. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't know that I'm really qualified to do this. I don't even know what the mission is. Uh, I mean, you just proclaim me forgiven and everything. And so, I'm, I'm, but Lord, I would, I would be so excited to do whatever this is. Please, I mean, if you'd consider it. I don't care what it involves. Here I am. Send me. And here I think is why that's the case, because when you see God and you experience the transformational rhythm of His story in your life, deliverance and freedom, relief and joy, you're reoriented in all of your values around the ultimate value, all of your missions around the ultimate mission, you know, then suddenly you no longer have to go. You don't have to do anything. I mean, if you think about the gospel, Jesus did everything we had to do in order to please God, and He did it all for us. It's not a have to do. It's a get to do. It's a, wait a minute, are you kidding? Are you serious? Like, you could use me? <laughs> like, you, want, you, might, you might want to use me? Like, I can do something like this? Whatever this is. You want to do it. See, that's what that story brings forth. It brings forth a desire to serve God. And so then here at Rio, in our personal worship and in our corporate worship too, every time we go to the Bible or we come together like we're doing this morning, whether you realize it or not, we work through that same rhythm every time. Why? Because that's the rhythm. <laughs> that's the story. 
That's what we come to relive every week together as a community. We remember God. What does it mean? Does that mean that we remember that He exists? No, no, no. It means that we stop and pause and reflect on who He actually is and what He's actually like and what He's actually done. Lord, we come into Your presence, and then we're undone, aren't we? At least we should be. So what do we do instinctively? Well, we don't make excuses. We don't give God our alibis. We don't blame other people for our issues. But instead we say, Lord, I'm going to be honest with you about myself. And here's the truth, by the way, you know it anyway. And then what does the Lord do? Well, here's what he doesn't do. He doesn't tell you you look better at the ball. He rushes to your aid and to your relief with the grace that Jesus has purchased for you. We rest in His grace, and then we receive His wisdom with open hearts and open hands. Lord, speak for Your servant listens. It's the posture of faith. And then what do we do? Last, the peace. We go out to do what He says. Why? Because we have to. No, no, no. Jesus did all the have-tos. That's done. Because we want to. Because it's a joy and a privilege to do exactly that. So, in light of who He is and in light of what He's like and what He's done, I just have one question. Uh, it is, what's your next move toward freedom? What's that? And it may be that you're going, hey, you know what? I'm a, I'm a spectator. I'm a fan. I'm not a believer. But, you know, I'm, I'm here, so that's pretty cool. That's awesome. Maybe my next step is 6 o'clock on Thursday night, second floor Bethany Christian School on the north side. It's just to come to Alpha. You're telling me it's a judgment-free zone? You're not going to go back on that? You're not going to, this isn't a bait and switch? No, it's not. Okay, I'm willing to explore the possibility of all of this. That's fantastic. Maybe you're already there and you've just been resisting it and you're going, okay, I'm in. Then you just need to come up after the service and pray with somebody, one of our prayer team members. Maybe the next move is you're going, yeah, you know, the Bible is confusing to me. I don't understand how it's all put together. I don't really get the whole grand narrative of Scripture. I don't know how to read this thing. And I really could use the help of a world-class scholar like Dr. Dr. Gage. And, and your move is to come out this Thursday night at 6 and right in here and learn how to read the Bible, to understand it, just to kind of sit at that fire hose and take it in. It's beautiful. Maybe your next move is to start spending time with God in prayer. You're like, I don't know how to pray. Start. <laughs> Talk. Share your heart. Talk to somebody who does know how to pray and ask them to help you. Opening His Word and, and reading it. Read the prayers of the Bible, the Psalms, and just pray through the things that the psalmist prays through. It's beautiful. Or maybe it's just taking the risk that I've been talking about the last couple of weeks of saying, all right, Lord, here's what I'm willing to do. I'm willing to take the step of praying that you will move in me. So I don't know what it is, but whatever your next step toward freedom is, because that's what it is, uh, I want to encourage you to take it. Okay? Let's pray. Our Father and our God, it is for freedom that Christ Jesus came into this world to set us free. Your Bible tells us that. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, your word proclaims. 
And Lord, I pray for freedom. I pray it for me. I pray it for everyone here. Lord, I pray it for our church and our school. I pray it for our city and county. I pray it for the world that we might know that in Jesus we are set free. Lord, thank you that you do not tell us that we looked better at the ball, but instead that you embrace us as we are and that you make us beautiful. We pray, praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.